Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. It's early Sunday morning and Troy Lightfoot is taking time out of whatever he does on Sunday mornings to help me talk through a specific problem from a student of mine. So Troy, thank you for taking time out of what you normally do on a Sunday. Thank you very much. No problem. What would you normally be doing right now? Uh, hanging out with my wife, so. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So, Troy, and Troy's an agile coach, and there's a bunch of other stuff that Troy does as well, but could you maybe give the folks kind of a quick primer on the background of who you are and the work that you do? So, I am a, a coach and a consultant. Uh, I consider myself a lean agile coaching consultant. Uh, so everything that I like to do has a focus on how to combine the principles and best practices of lean with agile software development as well as scaling. Uh, so I, in the last few years, I've had quite a, uh, worked with quite a few clients, uh, implementing lean portfolio management, lean and agile portfolio management. So I've been able to work in many scaling environments as well as figuring out how to get, you know, very senior people in a company working together for portfolio of products and, and uh, scaling environments. So that's a little bit about me. So just, just to stay with that for a second, coming from my waterfall background, way in the back, way in the background, um, when you talk about scaling and lean, that sounds like fat-free fat to me. Okay. Okay. Like we want to make things bigger and more extensible, but we want them to be thinner and lighter and faster at the same time. So when I say lean, I'm really talking about a few, a few specific principles. Okay. Um, one is the first and foremost, the visualization of all work in progress. Okay. Uh, second is the implementation of uh, limiting work in progress. And third is the removal of waste by uh, continuous improvement practices, basically. Okay. Now, I, this is one thing that I always get tripped up on inside my head with the lean folks is that when you say removal of, of waste, yeah. you don't mean, I'm assuming, absolutely zero waste, like 0% body fat, because there's some waste that if you take it out of the system, it creates more waste. Yes, correct. Okay. So it's applying... I hope uh, that made sense to the people that are... Yes. <laughs> yes, it's applying basically this... It's a buzzword, but it's basically applying systems thinking to anything you're doing, whether it's a team, a, a program, or a portfolio, right? So it's like, how does... Uh, there is a, there's a quote by a gentleman named... Uh, I believe his name is David uh, Eikhoff or Eckhoff. Okay. Um, he's an old school kind of management consultant, one of the experts in that and he has this quote that a a system is not the um the sum of its parts but a product of their interactions okay so it's it's really about analyzing the system as a whole and how does one thing impact another and, and applying things like the theory of constraints to that okay uh and figuring out where are our bottlenecks how do we improve the flow of value through a system so basically it's the opposite of the mindset of we have to get the most out of an individual resource Right. It's how do we get the, how do we... The most out of the system. Yes. And how do okay. we uh, optimize for the flow of a value through a system instead of optimizing any individual part of a system? Okay. And so there might be, the thing that I'm always trying to get to is there might be some practices that on the surface level taken independently seem slightly inefficient, but they're necessary in order to make the rest of the system more efficient as a whole. Correct. And then one of those practices, I know this is not what we're talking about, but one of those practices <laughs> is, is things like pair and mob programming, because on the surface, you may, they may seem inefficient, but actually, if you take a systems view, they end up being more efficient. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, that's great. Thank you. And I think that that sort of can connect to this next topic a little bit, but I'm going to prep the topic by saying that this is uh, a conversation that we're having because of some emails I got from a student of mine a few weeks ago. So shortly after the class ended, this person sent me an email saying that they'd been sent a request by their accounting department um, and that they wanted to be able to figure out what the cost per story point delivered was. And um, when I hear that, it sets off all kinds of alarms and warning sounds for me. And Troy, I'm assuming the same for you. Mm -hmm. um, but they were trying to get to understanding like a couple different things after we had this big conversation. The end game is if we are estimating work at a story point level for say a new effort, we need to be able to figure out how much it's gonna cost. And we wanna base that on story points. So, there is maybe a healthy uh, idea of risk complexity and effort being combined together there to, to assess potential cost, but they also wanted to be able to look at the cost of change. So let's say a change request comes in for an existing system or for something we're building right now. If they can estimate that in story points and turn that into dollars, then they can maybe make a more informed decision. So I think it's possible as much as there's a part of me that's rising up against this right out of the gate and wants to just scream. Um, oh, yeah. It's possible that the intent is pure and it's a reasonable question to ask, but um, it's possible that there might be better questions to ask, I think. But first, what is your initial reaction to this question of cost per point? Um, I, I, I am confused as to why they want to do it. And what I mean is, are they just trying to figure out retroactively how much did this end up costing? Or are they trying to figure out going forward if we um, have an idea, how much is it going to cost? Is that is it the latter? I believe it's what was explained to me was that it's really more for looking at future work. But there's also in one of the emails a question about how do we manage variances in budget? Mm. Okay, so the... Okay, my first reaction to that then is that um, story points, it, that would assume that you would have to have everything story pointed out, correct? Like, not correctly, because there's no such thing as a correct story point, but you would have to have everything uh, story estimated. pointed out ahead of time. Yes, estimated yes. out ahead of time to be able to do that. And if you had to do that to every single story, which means you would have to write every single story, split them small, then estimate them all and that that would take and while well, you're trying unless, to do all unless you went with these gigantic epicy things and was like this is 762 60 points yeah so here's my issue with that is that story points are the most easily gameable thing we have pretty much um because the the people controlling what the points are are the people what I mean is there's no one to really say, yes, this is two points or five points or eight points because it's all relative, right? Okay. And then we can start putting processes in place to say, well, a two point is actually equals this amount of time. And then we might as well use hours because it, the, <laughs> what I mean is then it becomes pointless. The whole point of using story points is supposed to be relative. So the idea of tying actual money to fake numbers is not something well, that... I would, I, I think it's a great idea. And you'd also have to do it in a uniform way across all the teams, which strips away their ability to own estimation. So the way that, correct, the way that this is typically handled is, let's take a non-scaling perspective first, right? You'll have one agile team. And the reason, there's many reasons why that 
folks like you and I suggest that agile teams stay together for a long time. Not that they can't ever change. Of course they can change, but that we want to keep a team together as a cohesive unit. Uh, one of the reasons is for budgeting purposes. That is just one of the many reasons. Because what happens is the team itself gets funded as a, as an entity, as a single entity. And there is someone, and in Scrum, it's usually the product owner, but it doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to be using Scrum, but I'm saying in, there is usually someone who's responsible for the prioritization around what that team works on, right? So it's really up to, the team has a fixed budget, right? So every two weeks, the team costs X amount of dollars. What we decide to prioritize is up to us. And so what we try to do is take that mentality at scale as well and apply that to programs and at the portfolio level when we have teams of teams and say, this team of team is, is now funded. And at the portfolio level, what initiatives do we want to prioritize? And then we can adjust dynamically, let's say quarter to quarter or most likely year to year uh, and say, okay, we have a team of teams. In the next year, we have these large initiatives. Maybe we need some more people on this team of teams, or maybe we, some people on this one, we could probably use for a, a different one, something like that. And so more like on a yearly basis, figuring out if we need to move someone around for some reason or, or add more people, something like that. But generally, I'm going to scale it back down to just one team. The team itself is a single entity that normally gets funded. So what that makes it really simple, right? Because then you don't have to worry about every single idea. Now, what you could do is you could do a relative comparison uh, of ideas. So let's say that you have a new idea. You can relatively compare it to something you've already delivered, right? Uh, figure out how long that took. Okay, you can, you, you can use actuals for that and say relatively this is in the same bucket of size, okay? Obviously, it's just like it doesn't matter what methodology you use or processes you use. At, we're just still guessing on that at that point anyway, right? So what you just do is we relatively compare it and say, well, we can probably estimate that this one of a similar size took this long. And, it, and so this team costs X amount of dollars per week or every two weeks, and it took two months to deliver this. So this feature or whatever it is, this large story roughly is going to cost between, you know, um, let's say four and five sprints, which actually equates to a dollar amount because we know how much the team costs uh, per, per week or per two weeks. So it makes it pretty simple that way. Okay. So I want to, I want to say one thing and then, and then offer something that, that I did and see what you think of that. So if you're listening to this podcast, we're both going to sound a little bit ranty and all over the map with this conversation, because I literally start spitting on myself when I think about it, because I've seen this go so sideways, so many different ways. So, um, I'm assuming we both agree that it's reasonable we think it's reasonable for the accounting department to want to know how much it costs the team to run. Like what's the burn rate for the team? Yes. Okay. And there's going to be some sort of financial estimation for a project cost, which we can talk about, about later on. Um, I had a gig where at the beginning of the project, we actually did have an entire backlog. Like the whole thing was locked down because we were rebuilding an existing system. And there was one guy who was so familiar with all this stuff. And normally I would not ever want to do this, but this guy was the only person in the company that knew every piece of this giant system. He estimated everything first in points, and then he used his own calculation to convert points into time. Now, at the beginning of each sprint, the team would pull work into the sprint and they would, on their own, independently estimate in points. And then they would track actuals. 
So at the end of the sprint, they were able to say, okay, we said this thing was an eight and it took this many hours. And we, when we compare the points and the hours to what the original person said, we can then look at variances. Okay. So then I'm actually able to forecast how long the thing will take, how much it will cost based on the fact that 90, we haven't touched 90% of the work yet, but what we've seen so far in terms of the data is variances of this in you know, these two different levels. So it's still complete total guesswork, but it allowed me to take this kind of three-point pert way of guessing for the company of how much the thing was going to cost and how long it was going to take. And all of it is just smoke and mirrors, but there's a lot of math in there yeah. and a lot of numbers, and it gave people a sense of comfort because they felt like they had an idea of what was going to happen. I mean, I feel like a lot of this is just alleviating fear. Yes. So I, that's a great story. So thank you for sharing that, Dave. It's the first time I heard that one. Um, I think that, remember we, t we opened this conversation about waste? Yeah. It, just from totally. just observation, it seems yeah. like a ton of Except waste. Except that it kept, yeah. it kept the waterfall organization it, it helped them leave the team alone. So I they see. were able to operate more efficiently because I, and I was sort of working alongside the team. So yeah, I was carrying a bucket load of waste, but it was like a shield. So you and I, <laughs> you and I talked a uh, long time ago about um, flow metrics and probabilistic forecasting, right? Yeah. Yep. So this is exactly the use case for probabilistic forecast, like one of the exact ones. And it removes pretty much all, almost all your waste. And all you really have to do is, if you have a team who's been together a while, and that is a caveat, I understand. But that's why we want to keep teams together for a while because it makes stuff like this very easy to do. And a side note, any team that's been together a while that ha that's putting an emphasis on continuous improvement is going to get better. And so what I mean is, if a team costs, let's say, $20,000 a sprint, right? Then the, the first sprint there together, the value you should be getting for that team 12 months later is not the same value. You should be getting more value for the same 20,000 because the whole idea of keeping the team together and focusing on things like retrospectives and continuous improvement is that they will improve, right? So that's just a side note to think about is that that goes hand in hand with this. So the money you're getting if from an accounting perspective is actually more ROI potentially if a team is not just time together longer, but actually investing in improvement. Uh, continuous improvement and things like growing out their cross-functionality and, and automated testing and these types of things, which will help them become higher performing. That's a side note. So your story about doing this estimation, then, then converting it to hours and having the team do the estimation, then converting it to hours, then going back and, and this whole yeah. uh, looks like a circular thing. Um, basically, what you can do is if you have a, some data, previous data, around story, stories, for example, and you don't even have to use story points, you can use story count. It makes it really simple. Um, you will have, let's say, six months of data of story count data, and you will have things like, okay, how long is it taking for us to get a story complete, either on average or within a percentile, right? And then you'll have a new idea, and you could compare that idea to ideas that you've previously delivered, and you can look at your actuals and say, okay, well, this idea, which is a similar size, ended up being 50 stories, okay, something like that, right? So we know that uh, you can plug. You can plug. How long will it take our team to complete 50 stories um, and, and into a Monte Carlo forecast? And there's tools out there 
for agile tools that can do that as well, lean agile tools. And the computer will literally tell you, it is an 85% chance that it'll be done this date based on your actuals. There's no estimating at all. It's just based on pure data and, and math. So, uh, and then if you want to go with, so you could say there's an 85% chance it'll be done on June 10th. There's a 95% chance it'll be done on July 1st. So we could say pretty confidently. If, if you don't June change 10th, anything. Yes. Correct. Yes. <laughs> yes. So once you start changing, but it's the same as estimating. Once you start changing, then the estimates are off anyway. Right. So the idea is that the, this, if you do it this probabilistic way, it's taking into account everything that previously happened. So all of the time off, all of the sick days, all of the things that they're all built into that data. Yeah. So then it's spitting out a, 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 pr a probability. Uh, and the probability has dates and date ranges. So then you can say, without guessing, the, we can say based on a historical data that we have an 85% chance of the, completing this on this day and 95 on this day. So let's take a range between 85 and 95 or whatever. And we'll say this is our range. And then we can calculate the, uh, the run rate of the team and say it's going to cost roughly this amount of money. Okay. Uh, and you don't have to worry about story points. You don't have to worry about converting things to hours. You don't have to do any of that. And it, it so sounds complicated, but it's actually super simple because the tooling does almost all of it for you. It's literally a couple of buttons you have to push. And I'll, so and I'll put the yeah, link to the other podcast where we talked about that too. Okay. So really it's more about knowledge about how to use the tools, how to use the metrics, how to interpret them, how to do some of these things. But once you learn that stuff, it's really simple. Well, I want to, okay, so I, I want to go back. I appreciate you sharing that stuff. And you always go deeper with this than my brain can track with. But <laughs> um, there was a word that you used in the beginning of your response to that last question. I don't think it had been used in the podcast, this podcast before. And I was sort of waiting to see how long it was going to take to pop up. Okay. If, if you are in a situation where your accounting department or some, some group within the organization is coming and saying, we need to know how much a point costs. And they're saying, we want to know, you know, what is the, the cost for the stuff that's actually delivered? Was the estimate at the beginning accurate? Who can we make, you know, like bang on the head to make sure they're getting better at being more accurate with their estimates, which is a completely other conversation as to why that doesn't make any sense. Yes. But the problem is, there's no conversation happening here about value. So the accounting people aren't asking you how much value was delivered. And that was the word that you used in, in this answer. How much value was delivered for that amount of money and how long did it cost? That's the only way this conversation makes any sense to me. Right. I, I totally agree with you. So um, I, there was two parts to value. There's the value of what we're getting for our money from accounting perspective for the team, right? And I said that, the idea of having people like scrum masters or coaches or whatever is that we are investing in this team as i almost think it i kind of think of a, an agile team as a product that we have to invest in okay so like when you first launch your product it's not going to be as good that day well theoretically than it will be a year from now because you'll be investing in it right, right. and you'll be putting more time into it and, and the care and learning about how to improve it it's the same concept like that's how i see it so uh, otherwise, there's no point in keeping a team together for a long time if we don't take, have that mindset. We might as well just, just put people on whatever and just move them around, right? So, I mean, that's, that's really the whole idea is that we keep them together, right? So, that was one. The second type of value, though, is we can deliver a thousand points but with zero value, right? Yeah. And the only people that determine the value are the actual users or the people that are paying us, whatever that is, depending on the context, right? So, until we validate that, all of this is... I mean, I'm not going to say it's meaningless because you do have to understand, obviously, how much things cost. 
But the idea that a story point is going to get you some kind of magical value is just not true. There's no correlation between story points themselves and value. Uh, story points are just, uh, I'm not the biggest fan, but they're basically just, uh, just a way of, of trying to measure the size of something. That's, that's all they are. It doesn't really equate to value at all. You can have something that's huge that is no value, something that's tiny and produces a ton of value. So the way that you have to measure value is quite different than measuring in the story points for sure. Okay. And if you're curious about story points, there's a really, Ron Jeffries has written some really amazing stuff about, you know, what they were originally intending to do when they came up with the idea. And originally story points were, I think the phrasing is, how long would this take a pair of people to do if the bastards would just leave us alone? And a point was (laughs) three days for a pair to deliver. Um, But I want to check in with you on, on one thing that one piece of advice that I did give to the person. And that was that if, if I'm working at an organization that wants to look at this stuff, cause they're trying to figure out how much to charge for new work. Then my response is always, well, in waterfall, what you did was you got a couple smart people in a room. You talked about it. You all guessed and you put a dollar sign in front of that guess. And in Agile, you do it the exact same way, except you can track it like sprint to sprint or week to week and look at your spend, but that's still not necessarily going to answer the value question. I mean, do you, do you have a different way of doing that? Well, uh, I mean, it's, the concept is the same. The processes which we may use might be different. Okay. But the, uh, the, the, you know, the third value of Agile is um, customer collaboration over contract negotiation, right? So in agile, in agile contracts, we tend to uh, fix the time and fix the cost, but flex the scope, okay? And the reason for that is we want to collaborate with our customers or the people that are paying us or whatever the context is uh, all the time. And so if we're using Scrum, you know, we'll, we'll use things like our sprint reviews to show off uh, our potentially shippable work with them, get feedback, and then adjust. And we want to be able to flex the scope because that we know we're going to get a better product in the end with that. Uh, so... There's more, they're going to get more value if they follow that model. If we say there's a certain amount of cost, right? And there's a certain amount of time here, okay? But within that, we are going to work with you daily, every week, every two weeks, whatever the context is. And, we will, and you will be heavily involved in actually reprioritizing things on a continuous basis. And, and they don't get that flexibility in traditional contracts, right? right. They just have to get, oh, they everything. have to assume that, yeah, they get everything. And then when they, when they get it, you know, two years later, whatever the case is, they might not be happy with it or they might have a bunch of changes and then they come in form of change requests or whatever. So we're going to say, we're not going to charge you for change requests, anything like that. We're just going to say, it's, you know, we cost, our teams cost this amount of money per every two weeks. So your budget is X, you're going to get this amount of time for that. Throughout that, every day you can be talking to us and we'll, we'll be working together. And then every two weeks, or if we're using Scrum, for example, or for most teams use two weeks, uh, we'll, you know, you'll be heavily a part of the sprint reviews. You'll be giving us feedback. We'll be adding changes to the backlog that no additional cost and we will pivot there and blah, 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 blah. So that it can be a, a real collaborative way. And actually they get more for their money that way, if you think about it. They get more value for the money, maybe not more output. Okay. Um, now, do you have any issue with organizations estimating value? And like, let's say they were doing points. I think they could maybe get to a valuable answer here if they were also estimating value. Well, how do you estimate value? I, I'm just going to guess and say using a, a Fibonacci or some other equally vague jello nail to a wall kind of way of assessing value. Unless 
you can, I mean, but you would have to do that even to get to cost of delay, right? Yes, but the, let me, value is only, is a, is something that happens after the fact, right? Right. Like the value realization happens after the fact. So estimating value is we should be estimating in the actual value that we think an idea is going to produce and then measure that. So for example, um, let's say we were working on an e-commerce application, right? Okay. And our first version of the application just did old school, like email sign up, right? And payment was you had to manually enter a credit card, for example. There was no PayPal, there was no Apple Pay or Google Pay or anything like that, right? Right. Bitcoin, et cetera. So, uh, and let's say we said, okay, we noticed that a lot of times our, our users are getting to our payment page, but it's so cumbersome that they end up leaving, right? Let's say that's a real problem. Uh, so it just takes too much time for them to enter things and blah, blah, blah. So we need a way to speed this up, to, to enable this to be keyboard-free, let's say, where we, they don't have to type things on a keyboard. So wh- there's many ideas for that. So you could implement PayPal, for example, right? You could implement Apple Pay or Google Pay or who knows? There's probably a million different type of payment options you could do. You could build something custom from scratch, right? There's a lot of things you could do. So we have, let's say we have five ideas. And so our top two are Apple Pay versus PayPal. Let's say they're our top two, right? Okay, so the hypothesis there is if we build these two features, that we are going to get some value. What value do we think we're going to get? Well, there should be some monetary value to this type of feature, right? We think that by implementing Apple Pay or PayPal, we should get actual more user signups like, that are paid, for example. Okay, so what do we actually estimate we're going to get for that? Like, what's realistic? What is a realistic increase? So we'll do some analysis based on, like, let's say, the amount of iOS users versus you know, people using PayPal and all that and say, okay, sure. well, if we, if we enable our iOS users are roughly 60% of our, uh, our user base or potentials, at least who are visiting our website, that's easy to get those, that data. So we think we can raise our, our conversion rate by five to five to 7% or something like that. Right. Okay. So you put that in there, we can do a dollar calculation on what five to 7% is like, because we know how much money that makes us. And we can say, so we estimate that this feature is going to produce this value over time, right? The truth is, we actually don't know. It's just a guess. It's an educated guess. That's why it's called a hypothesis, right? And now we have two features, which we could do that analysis on. But let's say we have one team who can only work on those features. They can't work on them. And we want to get one out the door soon. So we can't have them work in parallel on both. Reason for that is because it's going to take roughly twice as long, right? Potentially, you know, theoretically. So because of that, we say, okay, we're going to prioritize, I don't know, PayPal, for example. So we prioritize PayPal over Apple Pay. Let's say it's because it's more universal and we think it'll take less time. And then we do our analysis. Even though we think Apple Pay actually maybe from a dollar's perspective might end up making more money, we think based on cost of delay that we'll get more faster ROI for the PayPal uh, feature. So we go and implement that feature. Let's say it takes us two months we implement that feature and we deliver it to the market and then we actually measure the actuals of our hypothesis and in some agile uh frameworks uh there's a there's a term called okr which is not didn't come from agile frameworks actually came from google i believe but it stands for objective and key results and basically that is a way of measuring the value of your hypothesis right that is a measure uh, uh, the way i'm describing it that's the way i'm using it so for example you would say 
okay, by implementing PayPal, we want an increase of, of customer conversion from like five, eight percent. And we expect that. And we also expect that the time it takes for users to get from the, the landing page to sign, sign in uh, or, or new user sign up is decreased by, let's say, you know, 50% or something like that. So we'll put those <clears throat> metrics in the feature. And then when it's in production, we'll actually measure that. And then based on how it's performing, the actual value we're measuring, because we stated the value in conversion rate and we stated the value in time, right? Then we'll measure that. And then based on how it's performing, that's going to inform our future decision-making. Because remember I said we, fl we flex the scope, right? Now, the, the cost of the team is the same. It, it continues. And the time it takes, to we understand that. We can do our estimates. But basically, we flex the scope because now we say, you know what? We got an increase of 2%. We thought it was going to give us five to seven. And, you know, so what do we do now? Is that good enough or do we need to add another feature? Well, maybe we need to add, get add Apple Pay to get to that 5% increase. Okay, well, then we do that same analysis and then we implement that. And so it's basically database decision, decision making, trying to validate or invalidate assumptions. Now, so can I, the, can I yeah. interrupt you for a second? Because there's two things I want to bring in, two wrinkles. Yeah. Um, let's assume that somebody said up front that putting PayPal into play is going to give us a lift of 5%. Yeah. And we end up getting a lift of 3%. It seems to me to make sense that we would then go back and look at all our estimates for all the other stuff we've done and say, well, we were off by this percent. Yes. So maybe we should adjust. And this is a place where like, if accounting was really trying to be super granular about this, we're saying we're going to make $100, but last time we were off by 50%. So this one says we're going to make $200 off the new feature. So maybe that's really only 100 Yes, that could be one way of looking at it. And that, that could be very valid for... Um, because that way you've got, you've got a lagging. I mean, you're looking, you're talking about understanding value in a very lagging way. And but I'm, that's the only I'm, true way that we can actually measure value is actual value, right? Right. Yeah. Yes, no. but, but okay, that's not yes. going to stop them from yeah. asking the question of, because if you're trying to prevent gaming the system, then all I really need to do is say, oh, yeah, well, his thing's going to make $100, mine's going to make 200 Sure. So to fix that problem, and I understand that's a big problem, the prioritization discussion should not be done in a vacuum, meaning when, and the refinement as well. So the prioritization and refinement should be done with a group of people. So... The idea is that we take senior people, get them in a room, and we have, let's say, a product manager, right, a product owner, whatever the case is, and we take other senior people in the organization who have heavy opinions, I'll call it that, like the, high, the hippos, right, highest paid person's opinion. We get them in a room and say, here's, here's what we came up with. Let's talk about it. And then we build in some checks and balances into the processes. And that's, that's almost more valuable than the analysis itself, right? Because now we don't have one person. So someone's going to call BS on that is what I'm saying. Like we yeah. want to build in, we want to build into the processes where we can call BS on each other. And that's part of it. The second thing I'll say is there's a great book um, uh, called uh, Lean UX. Okay. If anybody's interested in it, a lot of this stuff comes from that. And also the Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And Jeff, uh, Jeff Gothel for Golift. I always forget how to pronounce his last name. Uh, he wrote this book called Lean UX. And in that book, he has a great quote. And he says, um, they were never really requirements. They were always assumptions. 
So, so there are never really requirements anyway. Anytime we come up with something that we think is going to make us get us some value a year from now or two years from now, that's an assumption that we're going to get that basically. The only type of requirements we have are, are more like uh, compliance requirements or performance requirements, stuff like that, right? But the idea that we can measure that, we're, that we have a requirement that's going to get us some value and then, so therefore we have to fund that thing is just purely an assumption. So it's, what I'm suggesting is it's, it's, it's a great idea to always assume that you're wrong. So always assume that you're wrong and how do you validate if you're wrong or not and how do you use that to make future decisions? It's not a matter of somebody getting in trouble or somebody getting a bonus because you're wrong or right or anything like that. It's purely to build in accountability and database decision-making, which will help you make more informed decisions going forward. So what you're saying, Dave, is retroactively looking at what happened and then adjusting from there. That's the exact point of it. Okay, so yeah. they yeah. do have this line, I'll highlight it on the screen for you now, where they want to be able to look at variances in budget. So if I was a traditional project manager and I was using something like earn value, I'd be looking at how off up to this point in time, how off am I in terms of what we spent to have this work done versus what we expected to spend to have this work done. And if I'm looking at my product backlog in that same way, like this, this part, I can actually draw a straight line from what they're asking for. And I can see where it makes sense. If I had 672 points worth of work in my backlog, and we estimated that was going to cost $100,000, well, now we're 50% of the way through and we spent twice that much. So what do we expect the overall cost to be? And what do we have to do with that information to decide what to cut out of our scope? So how would you do that traditionally? And I, what I'm saying is I don't know if it's that much different if you're using that model. I don't it think sounds, it is different. I, I, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I <laughs> yeah. mean, but, yeah. but the thing, again, to, to me, the, where this all comes back to is like when the person first shared the question with me, I'm like, why do they want that? Well, it sounds like they're that? using a fixed cost, fixed scope, um, a fixed time model. I mean, Or, or maybe, yeah, they're, maybe they're trying to make decisions about changing the scope. Oh, I but, see they're, but they're not basing it on value they're basing it on spend, which is what a project manager would do because we don't see value until we deliver the entire meal. Yeah. And also, Dave, there's other ways to measure value aside from just the way I'm describing it is very database. Uh, you have to have, for example, you have to have telemetry. You have to have a way to visualize and, and measure these things, right? Yeah. Not every single type of feature is going to have that. So you may also have to do customer surveys, customer interviews, right? Look at your, those types of things, which will be more subjective potentially. Yeah. But you may say, hey, the customers are really satisfied what we're doing right now. Let's, let's decide if we even need these other features. It might, it might not be so data-based, but there's, it's data, but it might be more subjective as well. Yeah. So what about this idea of cost of story delivery? I mean, without value, does that have any place? I mean, is there, can you say any reason why we would want that? Or do we need to teach them a different question to ask? Um, cost of story delivered. Well, I don't think it's bad to, to, to be able to put a dollar figure on that. I would just do it by using the flow metrics approach, I said. Because okay. then you can really, then you, then you don't get into the whole idea of two versus three versus eights versus, and then people can change that easily is what I'm saying. And then okay. you have to worry about at scale, it doesn't scale unless you say everyone is on the same exact story point scale. 
Right. And then it just becomes like really problematic. So what I'm saying is if you use story count, you can easily do that. You can go and back and say, well, uh, look at all the stories we've delivered in the last six months, right? They pretty much range between 12 to 16 days on average for most of these stories, right? That takes us to deliver. Sure. But we could pretty much say, well, 12 to 16 days, well, about 14 days isn't right in the middle. So 14 days is a sprint. And a sprint costs this much money. So pretty much we can say on average that a story costs this amount of money. It's pretty simple. It's like, it's, it doesn't take a lot of effort to do it. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you, so I, there was a guy that I worked with. Um, I'm mentally reordering my questions now. So give me a second to try to do this right. Um, there was a guy that I worked with who we talked about this one time and he said his teams absolutely wanted to know cost per point. Like that was, I, I would usually figure this out on my own, but not tell the teams because I didn't want them to feel like they were being clocked. But his teams wanted this metric because they could then focus on being more efficient with their time and try to drive down the cost per point. But that's got no... That would be, in my opinion, a team thing and not an accounting thing. Well, I, I agree with you. And I also think that we're focused on, personally, I think we're focused on the wrong thing. Because okay. the cost per point, how do we change the cost per point? Well, we change the points. <laughs> it's really easy, right? Because we could just point things differently. What I mean is it's so easily gamed that it doesn't really drive the right behavior. To me, what drives the right behavior is figuring out how to deliver you know, vertically sliced stories more quickly. Okay. Right? And there's two ways to do it. You split the story smaller, which is a behavior that we want anyway, right? right. We want smaller vertically sliced stories. And that, guess what will happen for the cost per story? It will go down, right? <laughs> Technically. Okay. Uh, the second one is uh, we figure out ways into work so we can deliver things faster. And, and, and we know that going back to the beginning of this conversation around lean, uh, that one of the principles of lean is this mathematical law called Little's Law, which states that your average work in progress divided by your average throughput equals your average wait time. So to simplify that, it's basically saying that if you can reduce your work in progress, on average, you'll have uh, faster uh, wait times, meaning basically faster time to market, which means the cost per story will be less. So reducing your whip and figuring out how to deliver things more in incremental chunks is uh, the kind of stuff we want to get to versus saying, well, the cost per point is five point story is this and eight point story is this. Okay. Well, let's just change the story points going forward. Like yeah. that's a lot of easy things to game that way. Everything is gameable, by the way. It's just a matter of figuring out what are the best. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that there's a lot of um, stuff that kind of hangs around the edges of this. That is, you can't see it by looking directly at it, but like everything you just described about, smaller pieces delivered faster, that also has an impact on risk. It's going to reduce your risk. If you're able to test it, you'll keep getting more data to make smarter decisions. But that's not something that also figures into cost per point for delivery. So I think this is all just stuff that you can use for a conversation. And what about, um, I'm going to go in the completely opposite direction on Zoom way out. If I'm at a large organization with tons of different products in play at one time, I would be able to theoretically look at, okay, that project, we estimated it as this much time for this much money and this much value. And now that it's been out in the, in the world for a year, we can actually see how much value it delivered 
and we actually know how much time we spent on it. So we have all the stuff that we did, the leading stuff up front, the cost estimate, the time estimate, the value estimate. And now that we've collected all that stuff at the other end of the actual cost, the actual spend, the actual value, um, couldn't we, if we had enough data, use that to forecast other things that we were about to begin within the large organization? Yeah, if you use relative estimation, sure. Okay. Yeah. Again, all these things are guesses. It's just that if you use relative estimation, it's at least um, it's at least a, a benefit for you because now you have things you can actually compare it to. Yeah. Aside from just literally saying we have nothing to compare it to, so we have to really kind of uh, make it up, and we're making it up anyway because we really don't know. These things are so, especially large projects. Yeah. It's so complex. There's too many variables. There's global pandemics. There's all yeah. kinds of things that'll happen. I mean, I just heard us uh, on the news earlier that um, 33% of the gaming industry, all games dates ha ha are changing 33% already based on working from home, purely based on working from home. Yeah. So already a third, and that's just now. I would imagine that number is going to go up. Meaning it's not like people are not working. They're working. But the fact that they're working from home is actually impacting the potential release dates of already 33% of games. So that industry is, gonna, is having a big impact. And I would say that probably scales around the world from all tech industries. That the things that we thought six, six months ago on any estimates we have about project releases is, is, is probably going to be impacted. And it's not enough to say, well, everyone's just working from home, so they should have the same exact productivity. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. It's just too many variables, too many uh, complexities there. So, and and another just to use that as an example, since we both play this this one of the games, there's a game that we both play together. So they've delayed the release of their next batch of stuff by several months, but I'm assuming that people are home, like people like me. I'm not traveling, so I have time to play video games again, which I didn't used to have. Yeah. So maybe the usage is shot way up but the release has slowed down so that's also going to affect value as well sure so you're right very complicated. <laughs> it's too <laughs> complex especially the it's hard honestly you know dave it's hard to get teams to even be able to say in two weeks we can complete this yeah like and actually that to be accurate let alone doing this for 18 months or and across multiple teams it's just too unrealistic to be able to work that way that's why i was suggesting fixing this fixing the time and fixing the cost and, the cost. and collecting the scope yeah okay so let's say this is the last question before we talk about the uprising um if you had somebody come to you and say hey the accounting department just asked me for this after you stop spitting on the floor um if you were trying to help this person come up with a response like what is the what is the first or second or third question or or thing that you would have them say in order to address the request from accounting which what specific request i'm sorry cuz i'm looking at the the sheet oh the last one how do we approximate the cost of story delivery um I would just I, I went straight into like building an argument and I'm not sure if that's the healthiest way. <laughs> I would just ask them, okay, why do you need this? And so I understand why they need it and then present um, some alternative options based on other companies, what other companies are doing in the industry is what I'm saying. Because I think maybe a lot of, one of the advantages of being a consultant um, 
there's advantages and disadvantages to it, obviously. But one of the advantages is you get to experience what a lot of other companies are doing and seeing how different companies work and then introduce those concepts to companies who, yeah. if you've been working at a company for 20, 30 years, you, haven't just, you just haven't seen it, right? Right. So, so therefore, we've always done it this way. So how do we just take this new... A lot of people think that Agile is just, um, I'm going to call it Taco Agile, which stands for um, titles and ceremonies only. And a lot of people just... Uh, <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, basically, a lot of people think, oh, it's just new titles and ceremonies, but everything else stays the same. Yeah. And, and when you have that mentality, you get a lot of stuff like this where you're trying to shoehorn in the same stuff you're already doing just with new names, pretty much. Yeah. And, and, and so I would just ask, okay, why do you need that? And, and okay, so once I understood why they actually needed it, then I would try to figure out a way to... to to make it work within the new models we're trying to apply. Um, and, and, and maybe give them something better than what they even have, right? And, and that's, that's, e that's easy to say, but I would really have to understand. I don't understand the actual why there. I, I like what you said. I, I think um, I always describe it as you, you kind of have to teach them new questions or teach them to ask new questions because if we just say why, you know, they'll give you whatever answers they've been taught to give to that question in the past, but figuring out what they're going to do with the information, that can often be the key that helps you unlock the thing that you just described, which is more valuable stuff. Tell me what you're going to do with it, then I can maybe give you a different kind of thing that'll give you a better answer than the one you were looking for. Totally. That's exactly what I was saying. And I'll finish my point about, and I know this is a side note, but it's true. The disadvantage of, of, of the consultancy thing when it comes to this is that you, you're not actually really a doer, meaning you, you are trying to figure out how to help uh, teams and organizations yeah. improve at what they want to improve at, but you're not actually doing the actual work. Yeah. And the longer you do that, um, you the know, more you wave your hands in a circle and say, it. <laughs> yes. So what I mean is that there's trade-offs to both sides. And that's why I think, you know, for organizations, especially bigger organizations, it's, it's great to have full-timers that have uh that have been there a long time plus bring in some consultants and so do you just get different perspectives and that's that's really healthy i think obviously for uh for, for improvement yeah and i think i mean just to kind of emphasize that when we started this conversation i know i felt like i was just being kind of ranty and we were running all over the road being like no 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 here's why um without actually addressing the person's problem <laughs> because yes, we've, yes. we've already spent so much time thinking through this and seeing it go wrong yeah. that it's like that, that, that part we're just going to skip over. But I think that's the value of the people that are on site is that they're not, they're, they're stuck on that problem. I think right. for the consultants, we have to slow ourselves down a little bit sometimes. Yeah, totally agree. Cool. Well, thank you for doing this. Let's talk about the uprising. So what's going okay. on with the Agile? Well, first of all, what is it and what's going on with you guys? Okay, so the Agile Uprising is a um, non-profit, not-for-profit, basically, uh, group of people who are just uh, love the community, love Agile and Lean and everything in between there. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it did. And, um, <laughs> and what we do is we have a, a podcast as well that we put on every week and I'm probably on I would say roughly one fourth of the episodes on average something like that um, and we there's it's there's a maybe nine of us I don't know the exact number but there's a board of, of members we have and that um, a lot of us are on the rotate on the podcast and we have very special guests usually every week uh, and ranging from all types of folks so 
Um, and we've actually done um, an interview series with the Agile Manifesto authors with 14 of the 17 original Manifesto authors. And what we did was uh, we interviewed them on their background going into writing the manifesto, the actual analysis of their take on what happened during those two days, and then a retrospective of the last, you know, since then, how, how do they think the industry is going and what, what do they wish was different and all that. So we got basically 14 different Agile Manifesto author perspectives from those three things. If you go to agileuprising.com, there's a whole section around manifesto review and you'll see it there. We also have um, some online forums, which are free, and you can go in and chat with other like-minded people like yourself. You can go and chat with coaches. I'm on there and we use a, uh, we, we have a website called coalition.agileuprising.com. It's, um, it's, uh, it's an online forum and you can see a lot of historical posts on there. But actively we use something called Discord. And Discord is an application. It's also a website, which is similar to Slack. It's actually a competitor to Slack, but it actually came from the gaming community. Uh, and the advantage of that is, you know how on Slack, you only allowed like maybe something like 10 users or something, and then you have to start paying if you want your historical uh, texts and files and all that, right? There's a, there's a paywall there. So in Discord, uh, it's I believe it's unlimited. So you can have a public Discord, which is unlimited people coming in there, as well as you can still do things like you can have your channels and you post pictures and videos and GIFs, and you can do all that. But the, they, have another, they have another feature, which is really cool, where you can set up these virtual audio rooms and you just pop in and out of them. So for example, like if you were gaming, right, you could have, if you had a Discord, a gaming Discord, you can have rooms for like different games and then you just pop in there and people are just talking. So you, there's no barrier to like setting up a meeting or anything. You know, it's like a virtual virtual room that you just join and it's you're immediately in a conversation with people so you can hop in and out of them and blah 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 so discord is really cool so we've embraced that at agile uprising we've taken that from the gaming community and basically applied it to what we do so you can come in our discord and you can chat about any topics you want um the only things that are off limits on that discord are basically politics and religion pretty much everything else goes there uh, and you can come in and talk about Agile, or you can talk about stuff you like to cook. We have different channels for all in the gaming. You can talk about whatever you want, okay? Uh, and it's all it's all in there. So um, feel free to join, and we'll post a link uh, in the description. Cool. this is awesome. So this is your this is where people would be going instead of um, the the coalition board from before. Yeah, like it's still up. You could st okay. still see all the historical stuff on there and search through it. There's a ton of information there, so we're not deleting it. It's just that we're not really actively on it anymore. Okay, so you've all moved on to this new tool, which is, okay, cool. Discord. This is great. I'm looking at it right now. It looks like there's a ton of stuff in here. It's an awesome, it's an awesome platform. Um, and you and they have an app, so it gives you the notifications if you want and the whole thing. So, Well, this is great. Well, thanks, man. And what if people want to get in touch with you? What's the best way to do that? Uh, I would say reach out to me on the Discord channel. <laughs> Personally, <Okay. laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, I am uh, G4S Troy on there. So, yes. okay. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, man. I appreciate this. And I'll put a, right. a link to your Twitter as well. All right. Uh, cool. Thank you. All right. Thanks, man. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. All right. Thanks. You too.